0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell in High Water, my new podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. With the final votes from a handful of straggler states having now been tallied up, Joe Biden fielding congratulatory phone calls from world leaders and launching his transition planning, and Donald Trump still refusing publicly to concede that he's lost, but privately doing just that, by among other things telling allies that he plans to run again in 2024, Last week, it became clear to all non-delusional Americans that this year's presidential election is well and truly and finally over. But something else became clear as well, that while a campaign dominated by COVID-19 may be in the rearview mirror, COVID itself isn't merely still with us, but remains the dominant fact of our national existence, and an increasingly horrific one at that. To help us get to grips with where we are with the pandemic, and more importantly, where we're headed... We are lucky to have with us on the pod a singular voice on that topic, the Pulitzer, George Polk, and Peabody Award winning science writer, Lori Garrett.
1: The state of the COVID pandemic is accelerating exponentially, completely out of control. And we will almost certainly, by Christmas, have had a cumulative 400,000 dead Americans.
0: The coronavirus crisis has given birth to an entire cottage industry of doctors, scientists, and other public health experts who've become familiar faces on cable news over the past nine months. But Lori Garrett brings more than knowledge and credibility to the table. She brings genuine prescience. In the early 1990s, Garrett, a fast-rising science reporter with a resume boasting work for NPR, BBC Radio, Reuters, and the AP, and graduate studies in bacteriology and immunology at Berkeley, found herself splitting time between a new employer, Newsday, and the Harvard School of Public Health, where a fellowship put her in contact with researchers focused on epidemics of previously unknown or rare viruses and bacteria. Out of that immersion came a book entitled The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance, which became a runaway New York Times bestseller, and nearly 20 years later, predicted with stunning acuity much of what we're seeing now with COVID-19. In short order thereafter, Garrett won the Pulitzer for her coverage of the 1996 Ebola outbreak in Zaire, her first Polk Award for her coverage of the crisis of public health in post-Soviet Russia, and another Polk for her next book, Betrayal of Trust, The Collapse of Global Public Health. A decade later came her third book about the American response to 9-11 and the anthrax attacks that followed. That was a tome bearing a title that would both accurately reflect her lived experience in 2001 and eerily foreshadow what she went through again as a resident of Brooklyn Heights in the COVID spring of 2020. The title? I Heard the Sirens Scream. Garrett and I first met this fall when I interviewed her for my series on Showtime, The Circus. What struck me then was how clear-eyed she was. Alarmed without being alarmist, neither panicked nor Pollyannish about the abject disaster unfolding in front of us. Her observations and analyses were rooted in hard data and shoe leather reporting. She talked micro and macro with equal insight and command. And she understood that what made COVID such a complex and overwhelming phenomenon had as much to do with politics and economics as epidemiology and virology. When that interview ended, I knew instantly that at some point in the near future, when the fall COVID surge that everyone was predicting inevitably hit, I wanted to circle back with Lori and ask her a bunch of questions. Just how bad is the situation really? How much worse are things going to get? How much of the blame belongs to Trump? What role has misinformation and disinformation played in the pandemic? And as we race towards a vaccine, how much might that effort be complicated by the fact that trust itself has become an endangered species in our culture? Garrett's answers to some of these questions are straightforward, albeit terrifying. Other answers are subtler, more nuanced and complex, and far less definitive. But I will promise you this, you will learn something from all of those answers, so buckle up, brace yourself, pour a good stiff drink, and dive into my talk with Lori Garrett on an all-new Helen Highwater. High Water. This election is over. It's time to put aside the, part- the partisanship and the rhetoric that designed to demonize one another. It's time to end the politicization of basic responsible public health steps like mask wearing and social distancing. We have to come together to heal the soul of this country so that we can effectively address this crisis as one country where hardworking Americans have each other's backs and we're united in our shared goal, defeating this virus. So that was Joe Biden on Monday rolling out his COVID task force. First thing he did as president-elect, both symbolically important in the sense that he was sort of nodding to the fact that this pandemic is is job one for him uh, as he gets ready to become the president of the United States, and also uh, substantively important in the sense that he wants to be ready to go from day one. And in fact, even before day one, Laurie, it's great to have you here today, even though it's obviously every time we talk, it's because of... It's not for, uh, not for happy reasons. I heard you on TV the other day saying that it's as grim as it could possibly be, exponential growth, the edge of a precipice so deep I fear greatly for our nation. So just how bad is it out there?
1: Well, first of all, we've had two prior surges and they were both localized. So for example, in the spring, it was as bad as could be imagined here where I am in New York City, but most of the country had very little COVID going on. And there was a lot of skepticism in much of the rest of the country. Maybe there was something that the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest were doing wrong, quote unquote, but the rest of us were doing fine. The second surge was in the deep South primarily and the Sunbelt. And that really came right off of Memorial Day weekend and everybody going out and partying and then got fed again by 4th of July and another round of partying. And uh, looked pretty scary if you were sitting in certain places like Houston and Dallas and uh, Miami, but never really spread much beyond that region on a big scale. But now we are in an every single state at once serious epidemic. In every single state in the nation, the rate of new infections exceeds 3% of all individuals tested on any given day. And some states are popping above 8 9%, even 10% of all tests coming up positive. And what this means is that the hospitals are completely full. The intensive care units are backloaded. We have patients on gurneys. It means once again, we're seeing the refrigerator trucks driving up and parking outside the ERs to accept the deceased because the morgues are full. It means once again, we're hearing sirens in the night all over America. But the big difference now is that there's no surge capacity for healthcare workers. When things were geographically located, it was possible for Utah to come help New York. But now Utah can't help Utah. New York can't help New York. We're understaffed everywhere. There's shortages of nurses, shortages of ambulance drivers, doctors, lab technicians, Every single category of response to this epidemic and the whole nation is going through it in one gigantic upheaval and there is no sign of abatement anywhere, only upward curves.
0: In the last seven days of the campaign or the election, you know, really what turned into election week, um, starting on, the, I guess, the Saturday before the election, I um, I traveled around um, in a kind of frantic state to... To try to cover the end of the election. And so I had a plane for part of it. We went from New York to California, California to Texas, Texas to Iowa, Iowa to Minnesota, Minnesota to Montana, Montana to Georgia, uh, Ohio, Georgia, Florida, Michigan, and then back here into Delaware for Biden's election. That's a pretty big geographic spread. We were in every part of the country. And the one thing that unified the whole thing was that everybody was in surge. You know, there was no place where you went. It was like, okay, there's, there's no COVID here or there's limited COVID here. Everywhere was in a state of of panic and to one degree or another overwhelmed. So many of these, of the emergency me- measures that, that states took in the period where the pandemic was not uniform, relied on the kindness of of other states, by the resources of other states that states are able to call on each other for help. And now it's like there's nowhere to call for help. Well, it's even, it's thing, even really. worse
1: than that because we also benefited from the assistance from Europe, from Canada, yeah. from Mexico, and they are all in surging epidemic at the same time our epidemic has spilled over to canada and mexico and it's now really a north american pandemic and europe is in terrible situation depending on where specifically you look it's total lockdown or on the edge of it even countries that had done very well like germany are having to restore uh, lockdowns and, ma- and mandatory mask wearing and things of that nature
0: yeah it's it's a stunning thing the the numbers are just stunning, too, right? I think that even really smart people don't really understand the, the the dynamics of exponential growth until they actually see it. I worked in Silicon Valley for a while as a reporter, and and you know, trying to get your head around Moore's Law when you start to understand what it means, what doubling every 18 months means, it's a it's a it blows your mind. Um, it's hard to grasp until you actually see it. And right now, it feels like we're kind of on a Moore's Law curve with this, um, and and people are only now getting their head around what exponential slash geometric growth means and that how big these numbers will get very, very quickly.
1: The um, Centers for Disease Control, as it tries to stagger out of its, um, you know, hidden in the closet status by the Trump administration and is starting to become more and more visible as it feels the relief of the arrival of the cavalry of the Biden right. camp they're starting to put out reports that you feel like, oh, this was probably on a shelf for a really long time. And, <laughs> yeah. and somebody finally said, let's take the risk, Trump is weak, Redfield's gonna be out, the head of CDC, and let's publish it. And one of those things they're, they're now doing routinely is this thing where they take about 30, anywhere from 30 to 36 different uh, modeling systems forecasting the epidemic, coming out of mostly academic centers and also some government laboratories. And they use artificial intelligence to screen through them and figure out where roughly are they in agreement and what's the range uh, of the agreement as you look out to predict what's going to happen. So they just uh, a couple days ago published one that predicts that we could have 280,000 dead by uh, December 1st. And I think they already need to revise that. And that we're closer to 300,000 by December 1st. And this, by the way, is without factoring in what Thanksgiving might mean. So, of course, the plea that all of us are making to the public is find another way to share a feast with your loved ones other than actually all being in the same room. Find another way. Because The travel itself is risky, and the gathering together of people from disparate geographies that may or may not have been exposed in their region and be a carrier uh, is just too dangerous. You look right now at uh, the incidents in the Dakotas, and if there's 10 people in the room, the odds are at least one of them is a carrier, an asymptomatic carrier of the virus. So you have a family gathering of 10 folks that don't cohabitate normally. Odds are pretty good one of them is carrying the virus. And that means that Thanksgiving is a potential, you know, mega scale super spreader event across all of America. And if we can't get in the noise of politics and the noise of transition and the noise of, you know, the mega million March and this and that, if we can't get people To listen to this one message. Thanksgiving could be the thing that turns this entire epidemic into a whole new level, like a, you know, puts it at uh, mock speed. And we could be getting to the point of the inauguration with a cumulative half a million dead.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I wouldn't want to use I mean, the word that popped in my mind is extinction event. Of course, I don't literally mean extinction event, but it does have that kind of super spreader doesn't do justice to that, right? A lot of people have Thanksgiving gatherings that have 10 people in them. And when you start to get at the level, going back to our discussion a second ago about geometric exponential, you know, you start to talk about a place where many Thanksgiving dinners are in places where if you had one on the normal size that you have a Thanksgiving dinner, there's a high probability that one person in that room is going to have COVID. And I think the thing that makes that so so terrifying uh, and palpable is something, another thing that I've heard you say in the last week or so, which is news to me. I obviously know about it, that we all know there is asymptomatic spread. But I saw you, I think, say that, that there's some evidence, some data out there that says that maybe 60% all the transmission now is coming from people who are totally asymptomatic and that is a you know that just ramps up the threat level on this right because you're talking about large a high percentage of people and a large number of them being totally totally asymptomatic of more than half man that is a very very volatile right and just just to
1: clarify they're they're not necessarily all of that completely asymptomatic but so mildly symptomatic that they're not self-recognizing oh i'm sick you know yeah and so if you put that all together that's your nightmare, that is, uh, it's, it means that, I mean, one thing that Tony Fauci at NIAID and folks in the public health community have been trying to make really clear is that we've now hit a stage where it is social gatherings of often very intimate friends, close family and so on that are the major drivers. We, for example, see a, a wedding in Maine that from that one wedding which was violating Maine's laws by being overly large in an indoor space, from that one wedding uh, have been you know well over a hundred cases with three or four deaths and we can see more and more examples of this. Uh, you know a group of yeah. uh, old girlfriends decide to have a mini college reunion at a bar and within two weeks half of them are sick. People have to realize, yes, we're all hungry for affection. We are all absolutely dying to hug. And just, I mean, I, I sometimes I wake up in the morning and think, I don't know if I can do another day of this. But you gotta hold it back, folks. We have to hang in right. there. Now, here's the other problem, John. This gets into your uh, sweet space, right? Is we had the president finally reappear from whatever bunker he's been in since election day. He's inside the White House where there's another super spreader event going on that clearly all stems from the election night party in the White House. It involves, you know, at least one cabinet member, his chief of staff, uh, one of his biggest donors, on and on and on, all down with COVID. And 130 secret service in some form of uh quarantine or isolation because of exposure to the president and his family and the white house and he finally appears in public in the rose garden with oddly completely white hair um it looks really like a devastated man and tells the American people that he's got everything taken care of and there's a vaccine coming and he's developed a master plan and his staff has put it all together and some of the first people to get immunized will be in late December and here's the plan for February, et cetera. Except he won't be in power in February, et cetera. And he is not allowing the people that will be executing that plan to communicate with the Biden transition team. So it's almost certainly, if we can't shake them out of this, it's almost certainly doomed to fail to be massively chaotic. And meanwhile, you know, the FDA hasn't actually approved this vaccine yet. There hasn't been a formal process. And should it be this FDA that does it without any input from a likely new FDA leadership?
0: You know, one of the things that we've been told... If you listen to the Trump forces over the course of the last months, there's been just you know a constant refrain that you know Trump says all the time that we count things as COVID, we shouldn't count as COVID, and instead I believe it, you know it's now you know in in the world of people who take data seriously and the reality based community, I saw some studies, some UPenn study and a BU study maybe that the problem is not that we overcount COVID, the problem is that we undercount COVID, and I'd love you to just talk about that a little bit that we see there's like excess death going on and that. Uh, there's a large, there's a reasonable, there's a good reason to think that a large part of that excess death from 2020 is attributable to COVID, and we're not even counting it. So the numbers are much worse, in fact, than they even look, and they look pretty right. bad.
1: We have this thing we call excess mortality, and it's a standard phrase in epidemiology that refers to trying to look at mega events that have occurred with large population level impact, and figure out how many people may have died in that event. Uh, that were not formally, you know, written down in a coroner's report in an official doctor's statement as cause of death equals X. So where we are with COVID is a massive excess death issue. We can go week by week since January and compare 2020 to uh, the average death totals for 2019, 2018, 2017, etc., uh, matched week by week because of course there's seasonality in death, right? And you can see anywhere from 36 to 40% increase in excess mortality. So this is not including cases that are actually already in a stated cause of death equals COVID. And in some places, the excess death is is astounding. It's like this, giant, it, it equals the actual ascribed COVID death and uh, many different studies have been done, not just in the United States, but also in Europe, looking at you know, how do you go about figuring out what percentage of this excess death was COVID. Here in the United States, it's generally an agreement that it's in the range of 26 to 36%. Now, if you start crunching numbers, you realize that we are already over 300,000 cumulative American deaths. Right. And when I say things like we're going to hit 400,000 by Christmas, I'm assuming that includes, you know, the excess mortality problem.
0: Right. There are two things that have happened, obviously, this week. One, Joe Biden standing up on Monday. We played that sound earlier and saying, here's my COVID task force. I want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about the Pfizer uh, vaccine announcement. So let's take them in order, you know, watching Joe Biden, uh, name the personnel on the COVID task force. Frame how they're thinking about the problem and and how they are thinking about the the seventy some days between now and when he becomes president, and then what happens after that. As you watch that, the both personnel and policy. Um, what was your reaction well, to that?
1: Well, first of all, you know it's such a relief to have a list where there are no relatives of the president. There are no people with financial interests in having the epidemic handled one way or another. Uh, there, are, are, are there are no formal former Wall Street financiers. So in other words, it's not Trump's task force. Right. It's also refreshing to see people on the list who are familiar with outbreaks, have been in the middle of them and have fought them. I'm a little distressed that everybody is an MD. Public health is fought largely by people who are not physicians the the really you know nitty gritty details of public health versus medicine is a long standing battle that goes back you know 200 plus years which is the yeah. priority saving the individual patient or saving the overall population if you're a physician you want an effective drug now you want your patient treated now that's your job that's your basic loyalty but if you're a public health uh, official you want the population safe and it oh. often creates real tension. So uh, I'm a little nervous that the list looks overly weighted towards the physicians and lacks sufficient representation from forces of public health. Now, given that, that means that a lot rests on who is he going to appoint head of CDC? It's oh. hard to judge this task force just from the names uh, present because it's going to be all about how they interact with the respective agencies and who's running those agencies, what are their priorities and how, how do their voices balance out. Right. To get us on the road to recovery and to defeating this virus, task one is going to be restoring the CDC to uh, some semblance of the glory it once had and the trust the public once held for it, its esteem, and bringing morale back to some level inside that institution that allows individuals to feel like they can execute their efforts on a day-to-day basis and, and get the job done. And I know they're chewing at the bait to do it. They're just, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. then, you know, on the vaccine front, that just dives right into it because the same is true over at the FDA. We're now, looking at a situation where the two front runner vaccines, and we'll hear announcements shortly from Moderna about their phase three trials, but are from Moderna and Pfizer, they're both made from RNA. So this is delicate nucleic acid material, like DNA, it's the mirror image of DNA. And these tiny bits of RNA are very, very unstable. They are specifically you know, you could say designed if you believed in the design, but their job, if you will, is to constantly fall apart and then reassemble and fall apart and reassemble. So um, right. to imagine a stable vaccine made from these is very tough right. and it also requires an FDA approval capacity that is cutting edge science. You need a whole bunch of people, both on the outside advisory committee and inside FDA that can uh, be allowed to venture into some pretty wild and in many cases, mysterious aspects of of basic biology. So to try and forecast what might be some of the untoward side effects that would happen from getting RNA shot into your body, (laughs) what we need to look for, uh, what constitutes a durable response, what do you want to measure how do you know if somebody's immune still after two months, two years, 20 years? How long does it last? All of this requires a very sophisticated set of scientific inquiries inside an institution that's been cut to shreds by Trump.
0: Right. You know, we all obviously are, um, we all are praying for a vaccine, uh, an effective vaccine that that has minimal side effects. That is what everyone wishes to happen. And no one is rooting against that, uh, even though we all have suspicions about big pharma and et cetera, et cetera. Everyone's still like we're all on the side of big pharma right now. And I think that my takeaway listening to you and others talk about this over the course of the last week is just that, you know, number one, really, really fucking complicated. Number two, right now we don't have enough of the data to really judge where we are. So good to be optimistic and hopeful, but not to get too far out over our skis. Number three, the implementation challenges are going to be enormous. The actually getting this thing, in either case, whether it's the, the the Pfizer one or the Moderna one, they're both going to have some of the same challenges in terms of refrigeration, mass production of a lot of doses, trying to get a lot of people to take it. It's all going to be really hard. And it would be really hard to do all of that, even if you had a fully receptive public. Because although a second ago I said there was a lot of unity about the question of, us well, all rooting for a vaccine, I have to qualify that. Because what I mean is there's um, a lot of unity about this among people who are not in the anti-vax crowd. And unfortunately, the anti-vax crowd is very large. And so we have seen polling that suggests that there's you know millions upon millions of people and certainly a large chunk of, of the people on the conservative side of the political divide who are like, I'm not going to take a vaccine under any circumstances. I don't really give a shit what you tell me about it. I don't care what the data says. I don't care what Lori Garrett says. I don't care whether it's President Trump or President Biden or President whoever. I'm not rolling my sleeve up and letting you jab me with that thing. So that's going to be another challenge. And all of that, I just, just, I say we don't need to unpack all of that, but just to say all, we all want a vaccine. And yet, man, there are a lot of hurdles to uh, to getting from here to there. The most illusory thing in the world is this notion of, hey, here's a vaccine uh, press release, the stock market just popped, great, we're almost there. Nothing could be further than the truth, then we're almost there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've pretty much said everything (laughs) that needs to be said as far as appropriate dose of skepticism here. Look, we all, nobody wants to be the naysayer standing on the sidelines saying, you know, nah, none of it's gonna work, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, um, the euphoria that the business community greeted this with is, oh, it's without a basis. It's really unsubstantiated. And what I hear from business community leaders when they reach out to me and ask me, when am I gonna be able to reopen my factories? When am I going to have a consistent supply chain again? Um, or my restaurants open again? And I tell them, You all imagine that there's going to be this moment when suddenly there is a vaccine and this one vaccine is so fabulous that everybody just needs to get one injection and you need to get a certificate or something that proves that you've been vaccinated and you can go back to work and everything will be like 2019 again, but that's not going to happen. That's not how this is going to play out. first of all, Putting aside the, the specific logistic problems of these RNA vaccines, there are other vaccines in the pipeline that will be coming forward you know, eventually and may be easier right. to administer, certainly in developing countries. But every one of them is going to require an infrastructure of public health in every country in the world that is capable of tracking who's been in- injected and who hasn't. Uh, we're going to have to have ample supplies of syringes of uh, whatever administrative equipment is necessary for a specific vaccine, uh, which we don't. Um, And we're going to need an infrastructure that keeps track. So, I mean, just think about this. We have the HPV vaccine. My goodness, what woman wants to die of cervical carcinoma? If you've ever seen someone, and I have, die of that disease, you know it is horrible. It is painful. It is is the ugliest most horrible way to go who wouldn't want to be fully protected and ensure that their children their daughters would never face that potential again we have the possibility of actually eradicating a form of cancer from planet earth and yet the uptake is disappointing
0: right there's a lot of caveats uh a lot of caveats and a lot of mtors let's Whew. Okay, so that's all um, uh, bracing. Let's actually, I think, I'm, well, let's take a little break to pay some bills at this podcast, and then we'll come back uh, and talk some more with Lori Garrett here on Hell and High Water.
1: This administration will not be
0: going to a lockdown. Hopefully, the, the uh, whatever happens in the future, who knows which administration it will be. I guess time will tell, but uh, I can tell you this administration will not go to
1: a lockdown. They won't be a necessity. Lockdowns cost lives
0: and they cost a lot of problems. The cure cannot be, you got to remember, cannot be worse than the problem itself. So there he is, Donald J. Trump, sounding the, a familiar refrain. How many times has he said that? The cure cannot be worse than the problem itself. He's still saying it even after he's been defeated in his quest for re-election by Joe Biden, although he has not yet accepted that, at least publicly, I think, at least in his mind, he now knows we're back with Lori Garrett on Helen High Water. That was uh, Donald Trump out in on Friday, making his first public appearance after a long, for him a long and and God a blessedly um, lovely state of Trumpian silence. We all didn't have to listen to that to that guy for days. Like uh, to me, that's the concession speech. Trump silence for days on end, and so he came back out and finally spoke again, and and is just making it about as little sense as he has throughout this entire pandemic. And so. Um, What's your sense right now of of how history will look at this president and how he handled this virus uh, in the course of the now almost, well, 10 months or so that he's been dealing with it or not dealing with it is probably more accurately states the case?
1: Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the two individuals who come across as having the most blood on their hands in the COVID crisis are Xi Jinping and Donald Trump and that history will so record. In the end, it's quite possible that Xi Jinping's responsibility, his failures in uh, December and January in China, will somehow uh, seem trivial compared to Trump's role, essentially as what I would call the great amplifier. You know, we have viruses that jump from one species to our species all the time, and. Sometimes somebody dies and it largely goes unrecognized. It's a constant event going on all over the the world, all the time. HIV we know was jumping into people uh, from uh, primates uh, repeatedly for well over a hundred years. And then boom, the jump that amplified. An amplification, that thing that takes the isolated human case and turns it into an outbreak and then from an outbreak to an epidemic. That amplification process is all of our species doing. It's not some outside mysterious you know, uh, aliens from outer space or what have you that make of epidemic expand. It's our behavior, right. it's, it's our stupidity, it's our dumb things that we do that aid and abet the microbes. And the worst case scenario is one where the actual leader of the most powerful nation on earth is the primary amplifier. How has he amplified this epidemic? Well, it's not just about mismanagement, though that, of course, has been a big problem. It's also about an enormous amount of of deliberate misinformation. Uh, There's been a couple of interesting studies of this. One shows that 38% of all conspiracy theories and misunderstandings about the virus traced to the president of the United States. 38%. That means that, you know, well over a third of all the incidents where somebody went out and bought a product they thought would, you know, help them or cure them, that was utterly bogus, or you know, refused to wear a mask or spit on their neighbor and got in a big old fight because they refused to do social distancing or got in a fist fight in the Walmart because of mask rules and all that. This is tracing back to the president of the United States. So, I mean, if there's one big obvious immediate difference we will experience on January 20th, it will be the end of the lying. The end of the deliberate disinformation, the, the, the end of maybe it's bleach, maybe it's hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir is a cure, it's the miracle drug, uh, you know, on and on. We don't need to wear a mask. I won't be wearing one of these, said he. It's the end of a certain kind of uh, uh, amplifying by virtue of, of miseducating or diseducating.
0: Uh I do actually just want to pause for one moment and just talk about you for a second. How did you get into this? I mean, The Coming Plague, the book you wrote um, in the early 90s was was is obviously a landmark book and and made you famous uh and and was very pressing about where we are now. But it also was you won a Pulitzer for your reporting on Ebola in Zaire. Um you know, you had been a science journalist uh, for years before writing The Coming Plague. This is a very grim field you're that you've become a dominant voice in and I'm curious as to how you found yourself uh doing this work it's put you in some extraordinary places i mean at in new york at 9-11, in new york during this outbreak uh in chernobyl i mean you you know you've been in some pretty in, in i mean in classic hot zones um so just talk a little bit about that how did you find yourself the plague mistress
1: <laughs> i've been called all kinds of things i had a boss when i was at the council on foreign relations for 13 years i had a boss who Always call me Debbie Downer, and every time they would go around the room and have a conversation, he'd say, "Well, what does Debbie Downer have to say?" Um,
0: well, I think that's I think that's disrespectful. I would never do that. But I think you know, the, you are one of the world's experts on plagues, you know, and that's a that is a dark thing to be an expert on. Your voice is incredibly valuable, obviously, but it's also it means that your work life is consumed in going to dangerous places and talking about things that are scary as hell. Again, I ask, how did that come about?
1: Well, I started off trying to cure cancer. It was a a modest goal uh, set by my mother because (laughs) she was dying of cancer and she commanded me to change my major in college and go find a cure. So uh, and she died when I was a sophomore in college. And uh, so I switched from sort of a vague politics theater major, (laughs) one of those classic flaky things, to biochemistry. And dove in headfirst and pretty quickly realized that if there were answers, they lay with the immune system, with understanding the human immune system and figuring out why doesn't it correctly scavenge all cancer cells? Why does it sometimes recognize a transformed cell and sometimes fail? And what causes a cell to transform? I mean, it's not just cigarette smoke. There's a million different things that cause, literally a million different things, that cause a cell to transform. And some of them are infectious. And increasingly, uh, more and more of cancer turns out to have some kind of infectious origin. And so I I went to grad school at Berkeley uh, to get a PhD in immunology and did research at Stanford. And then while I was in grad school, I ended up, Doing these little radio gigs for a local radio station in Berkeley, and these little radio gigs all about science got more and more interesting. And then, to my astonishment, we won the Peabody Award, and our show, myself and co-producer Addie Gevins won the Peabody Award. And was like, "Wow, that was really easy. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, killing mice all day." In the lab and injecting these angry animals that turn around and bite you and infect you with mouse smallpox, you know, that's one thing. But wow, this was like fun doing radio. And uh, Mm. we won the Peabody, for God's sake. Uh, And one of the things that had been going on during that time when I would be in the radio station is you remember the old days when we had um, teletype machines banging away. Sure. It sounded like machine guns going off in the newsroom all day, and they would be reports coming in from all over the world, and there would be this ping, ping, ping system, where they would all ring loudly, you know, if the Pope died or, or the World Series results or something that was considered big news, and every now and then there'd be like ten pings and it'd run over, and it would be from Dateline, unpronounceable, on a foreign continent, mysterious outbreak, people dying. Nobody knows what it is. right? And I started saving these. I, I have a whole stack of these old AP and Reuters and uh, UPI and so on. And, uh, and I, I, because it totally contradicted what I was learning in grad school. In grad school, the message was we've conquered infectious diseases. This is all now cancer and heart disease. But it, what I was seeing was, wait, there's still mystery out there. There's still stuff happening. And that, and then when HIV happened, and I was based in San Francisco, and I, you know, within four years, I'd seen my circle of friends reduced by half. I mean, it was just devastating the amount of of, of carnage that HIV was taking. And to, and I knew right away it was a virus, even though there was a great debate. Maybe it was poppers. Maybe it was some drug uh, that were. People were using in the bathhouses and blah blah blah. It was obvious to me this was a virus, and that it was transmitted sexually. And I realized, my God, if every country reacts to this as badly as America is, this is going to go global. And then I traveled outbreak to outbreak to outbreak. You know, I I was in a, probably at least twenty uh, HIV outbreaks at their start around the world and watch the same pattern of stupidity play out by government. And, you know, people uh, often say, I will hear people say, oh, you know, we're in another great pandemic like 1918. And I'm like, no, we're in another great pandemic like HIV. Yes. And there's more similar with HIV on the po- political level than there is with flu. Because it's the difference is, of course, HIV takes 10 years to kill you. So it's slow motion. But it's the same notion that, well, it doesn't affect me, so I don't have to have urgency about it. You know, you could think of the mask as the modern-day condom and the same level of anger experienced in many elements in the early days of the gay community. I refuse to wear condoms kind of thing. Well, that's same idiocy of I refuse to wear masks and the same senses of stigmatizing different aspects of, A disease and of protection against the disease. Here we are again. And not surprisingly, some of the same evangelical forces that lined up to say, as Jerry Falwell said famously, you know, this is God's retribution for immoral behavior. That was what HIV was supposedly, you know, visited upon a population to kill them deliberately. How dare they be gay, right? Well, now we have an evangelical community. One by one, preachers are actually dying of COVID who have been up saying, the Lord will protect us and everybody come to church.
0: Man, I mean, I hadn't had not really fully thought of that parallel, which is powerful. The HIV parallel is powerful. Um, John, can I just
1: tell you one of the scary thing about that?
0: Yeah, sure. Of course. Because that's what you're here for is to scare the shit oh, out of me and sure. everybody else. So that's your job. I mean, that's uh, if you weren't doing that, well, I don't know what the hell you're doing here. Go ahead.
1: Many months ago, back in early April, the Secretary General of the United Nations asked me to participate in a briefing for all the heads of the various UN agencies about COVID. And I said, Ben, that we really only had two options. We either were going to... Uh, eradicate the virus and that was going to be the global goal. So the model would be smallpox and we would consider how smallpox was eradicated in the middle of the goddamn Cold War because Russia and the United States decided to form an agreement and Russia put forward the vote in the World Health Assembly, let's all eradicate and the United States seconded the vote. And so side by side, you had Soviet and Western scientists and physicians and disease fighters tackling smallpox around the world. I said, we can either go that route, which in today's context would be China and the United States, or we are going to have to live with this virus. It's going to become endemic. It's going to be all over the world. And we will end up with whatever products are developed, vaccines, drugs, whatever they may be, Uh, Creating a vast infrastructure that will make the infrastructure we've created for HIV look minuscule. And so you will see decades of transfers of billions of dollars with resources, drugs and everything from the wealthy world to the poorer world, from one part of the planet to another to control this new permanent element of our global health landscape. And that scenario clearly is horrible. And unfortunately, as I look at the situation we're in right now with the vaccines, the rich world has pretty much bought up all the advanced supplies, even vaccines that are way back in the pipeline, haven't even been tried in people yet. Rich countries are already putting in their bids and advanced purchasing, uh, so that there's not a stockpile sitting around to be used in Chad. You know, Nepal, Nepal can get right. to the back of the line, baby, right. you know, it's bye-bye so, yeah. you know, Ghana and adios Bolivia. Right. This is all going to, you know, Western Europe, United yeah. States, Russia, China.
0: Let me ask you one last question before we go a break um, and then and turn our eyes to the future, although we're already doing that right now. But let me ask you one last question related to your work. Like I said before, the coming plague is obviously the book that I've read. Other books, this is the book though that I think is the most associated with you in the public mind because of its prescience, um, and, and it's the thing that established you in a lot of ways as as one of the leading voices about pandemics and plagues. What do you feel like you missed? What's been at variance in our lived experience of COVID? You look, think back to the coming plague, the book, and think, okay, this is where I where I thought it would unfold in a slightly different way than it's been true, or in a majorly different way than it's than it's proven true. What were you misled by or in error about in that book?
1: Well, I mean, the big thing I screwed up. And it's not just me. Uh, I think we all did, but I really did. Was I mean, I knew full well that Ronald Reagan had um, allowed HIV to spread. Without showing any particular concern about it, without mentioning it, and without putting resources to guess who? Tony Fauci, way back in 1981, 82, 83, that at a time period when it could have really made a difference, when it might have really uh, slowed the entire thing down and certainly prevented it from becoming a pandemic. And so I should have been more on my toes thinking. What happens when the national leader is the primary problem? But I don't think any of us. And I'm, I've looked back on the notes of all the old scenario role role playing games we've done uh, that I've observed right. or been a part of over the decades, where you would role play. What if you know smallpox is in New York today? What if this mystery virus arrives? Dark winter, etc. And none of them imagine that the primary problem would be the white house.
0: Yeah. Um, yes. (laughs) And yet, and yet here it is. Um, and then as much as Reagan was a problem, as much as Reagan was a Reagan's inaction, well, we'll get to this in a second. As much as Reagan's inaction on AIDS, uh, was a, was a huge problem. Trump's worse, right? Because it's not just inaction. It's um, a kind of action that's been pernicious and has undermined any effort to try to deal with uh, the, the this COVID outbreak that's still consuming uh, so many, so much of our lives right now. Let me take a break real quick, and we'll play, do a little, play a couple of advertisements, and then we'll come back uh, to finish up and cast our eyes towards the future with Lori Garrett here on Hell and High Water.
1: My really big fear is that the politicization of the entire vaccine process has become so toxic, it almost doesn't matter, in a sense, who wins in November or whenever we finally declare the election results (laughs) and it gets through the Supreme Court and whatever happens. We could have a viable, adequately proven safe vaccine available that really works the majority of the American people would refuse to take it. Because the schisms are there, the divisions are there, the fault lines are exposed, and political leaders have poured salt on them. I hate mass, poor salt. I hate Democrats, poor salt. The Black Lives Matter demonstrations are spreading the disease, poor salt. I don't see how we just sort of bounce out of this. I see this as taking us well into. 2021, 2022, with a deeply divided America that just constantly finds values issues, social issues, political issues that supersede the fight to end this epidemic.
0: That was you, Laurie Garrett, uh, talking to me, John Heilman, um, in, uh, on Showtime's The Circus. And it stuck, a lot of that interview stuck in my mind. It's a large part of the reason why we're back here together today. But that that one, that that ended the interview that we put on the air. And it has been ringing around my head ever since uh, you said those things to me. Because I had no idea that we would have an election where the results would Uh, would would demonstrate not just that we are a divided America, but that we are more divided than any of us even believe. There was still, heading into this election, I think some people thought that there could be a large-scale repudiation of Donald Trump, not that there wouldn't be divisions or obviously we're going to be a divided America, but you could have imagined an election result that was more of a thoroughgoing repudiation of Trump and Trumpism than what we had. In fact, what we had was a very decisive victory by Joe Biden, but Uh, Republicans gaining seats in the House of Representatives, uh, likely keeping control of the United States Senate, and Donald Trump getting 73 million votes, the second most votes that any presidential candidate has ever gotten. Something that a lot of us for four years said was impossible. Like Donald Trump, all he's doing is catering to his base. He's not adding anyone. He's not picking up a single voter who he didn't have in 2016. That was a Conventional wisdom, I'm sure I said it a 100 times in the last four years. And I think for a lot of people who are very relieved by Joe Biden winning the presidency, they are still like shook by 73 million people watching Donald Trump govern the way he's governed for the last four years and watching him manage this pandemic the way he managed this pandemic. And they still went out and voted for him. So the divisions that you were talking about, Lori, in that interview we did are deeper than uh, than than I think most people imagine they were. And now we're heading into uh, a new presidency, uh, but it's still the same America. And, and so I guess a good place to start this part of our conversation is to ask you, you know, what the election, as you saw these election results come in and, and saw, you know, the, the level of the division as, as I've just described it, what do you think that the implications of that are for the fight ahead when it comes to the pandemic, that is.
1: Well, obviously I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and I've been trying to balance some some sense of my own fears and some optimism. The optimist in me says, look, once we have consistent, rational messaging, it will be such a relief to the average American, that we will see uh, most of America suddenly willing to go along with things like wearing masks and accepting uh, vaccines and more and more businesses pushing it because they want to reopen and they want to help counter misinformation and so on. So the optimist in me says there's such a hunger for normality that it will overwhelm the voices of disdain and, and nightmare. But Donald Trump is not going away. And Trumpism is not going away. So we will continue to see debates, arguments, screaming, and strange alliances forming. You know, the whole anti vax movement in the United States uh, that was causing resurging measles in the mid-2000s, 2003, four, five, up until now. And by the way, we've, we're back to record levels of measles yeah. because of COVID disrupting immunization efforts. That whole resurgence and everything was actually coming from a, a very different political place. It wasn't right-wing, it was an odd kind of Marin County, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, yes. you know, folks that think you, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe crystals help. Very crunchy.
0: Right. Sedona, Arizona, very crunchy. Very, very. very. Yeah. A lot of Teva's going on. And it's
1: relatively recent that it crosses into the right-wing evangelical community and into uh, the the libertarian community. And the libertarians go from being very, very fringe to now a core element of the whole Trump uh, form of the Republican Party. Right. And all of this means that the politics facing public health advocates are far more complicated, far more difficult, uh, that there's no one message, there's no one target for trying to convince. You know, it's... it's, it's so you you manage to get the person who comes from the granola crowd yeah. to finally agree to immunize her children. Uh, before they go to school, well, that doesn't help you with the crowd in, uh, you know, Waco, Texas. That's all about, you know, I don't trust government, and government can't tell me what to do, and if I don't want the goddamn needle in my arm. You just come down because, by the way, I'm heavily armed.
0: I want to ask you about, well, just a few more things. One of which is again something we've talked about in this conversation, but I want to like highlight it and draw out a little bit more, which is. You know, Trump has been a super spreader of COVID. Um, He's also been a super spreader of misinformation and disinformation. Um, We've said that. It's also the case that he's not the only one. He's not the only super spreader of disinformation, misinformation. And and you have pointed to in other settings the degree to which deliberately false things about this pandemic, about this virus have, have become have have been inserted into social media. That you know, we have a big problem with misinformation, disinformation, and social media in this country, in this world that we live in. It's a problem in our politics. It's a problem in in every aspect of our lives. It's one of the, I think one of the most fundamental things that we have to get our arms around because it's increasingly clear just how central it is to the un, the increasing ungovernability of modern America and and of of other places as well. But it's just it's so so profound. It seems to me that, that this, is, this is, would be a very hard virus to fight under the best of circumstances. And there are many ways in which this isn't the best of circumstances. And one of the ways in which it's really not the best of circumstances is how much conspiracy theorizing, false information, deliberately false information is in the information ecosystem, unmonitored, spreading like wildfire, spreading almost as fast or faster than the virus itself Trump is obviously as I said part of that but there are other culprits there too. I'd like you just to talk about that and how hard like how bad that problem is and how hard it makes how hard it's going to make it another thing that's going to make it hard for us to ever get a handle on this this pandemic and other pandemics that we will inevitably face. Um I, I mean you you pay much closer attention to this because you monitor it in a way that I monitor misinformation that affects politics. You monitor it in a way that it affects these matters, but I'm, I'm curious as to your perspective on that and just how far-reaching it is and how pernicious it is and how big a problem it is.
1: Well, we've reached a stage, I, I mean, it's just staggering. Health commissioners, health leaders all over the country have had death threats. I've had my share as well. I think everybody who's a, a very active voice calling for people to wear masks, to follow social distancing has faced threats. Uh, and the threats are coming from mm. people who are listening to a completely different context of information. So they feel truly justified. They feel, uh, you know, in the old days when when somebody would send me a really nasty note uh, and say really crude, awful things, uh, they tended to be, yeah. you, you would be right to think, well, that's that fat guy in the basement who spends all day hating the world, and I can ignore it. That's not the case now. Now we're looking at people who are literally on a mission. They've absorbed massive amounts of information off the internet from specific places they go to, specific sites they follow, specific heroes and leaders. And they are on a mission, and they truly believe. They believe to such a degree they'll burst into tears telling you, How can you not see this? This is what reality is. And public health is, by definition, in a very weak position. First of all, public health is a government function. So, everybody who hates government, you know, public health gets lumped right in there. Second of all, it's a very, very political form of science. It is based on science, on empiricism, but getting anything to change requires that the public health advocate understand how city council works, understand the mayor, understand the governor, know how to do legislation, and so on. Um, so by definition, uh, success in public health is tied to sophisticated understanding of politics and of how the, the general public right. is mobilized and thinks. But you go to any school of public health, and I, and you just—I defy you—to show me the classes where they train them in this these skills. They don't exist. So people come out of a school of public health yeah. trained with a PhD to go off and crunch numbers on diseases, or uh, track down viruses, or uh, manage giant water sewage systems, or things like that. But they don't learn how to do battle when uh, a conservative mayor comes in during a fiscal cutback period and says, we're spending too much money on water treatment. I'm cutting your budget by 50%. And you know that means there'll be an increase in enteric diseases. So we're in a situation now where the challenge is incredibly high, regardless of what you work on, whether it's aeronautics, you know, Did Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon or not? (laughs) Or whether what you work on is saving lives uh, in your community from a a dire pandemic. And uh, I I just don't think that most people who are, you know, knowledgeable and have the right toolkit for confronting disease have been trained in how to do the politics of it.
0: Without being Panglossian, without being Pollyannish, what, is there to, what, what hope is there to cling to? What is it that we, you know, those of us who did look at the defeat, the law, the defeat of Donald Trump and, and say, OK, at least that's a step forward, having a rational, science-based person in the Oval Office, the most powerful job in the world, who is going to take this pandemic seriously and who's going to try. And is going to try to be based on fact and based on science and based on reason and based on 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 trying to genuinely pull the country together. All of those things are true. It's not to overly uh, deify Joe Biden, but just to say those are some very basic things that make him better than Donald Trump when it comes to dealing with this. You know, fact, reason, science, logic, um, knowing that it's a serious problem that you have to have a strategy, et cetera, et cetera. As you sit there, knowing what all the things you know. And having listened to me now lay out all the reasons for pessimism and concern, and then also knowing that there are some reasons to be a little bit more optimistic today than we were a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, what is it that you personally find as a cause for for hope, for optimism, you know, for cautious, well-grounded, non-delusional optimism? What is it that you cling to and what is it that you point to um, and what is it that you kind of identify as a basis for trying to step forward? Bravely um, into this rather daunting future we face on this, on the when it comes to this pandemic.
1: I've, I've been very intrigued by the sort of intellectual alliance, if you will, if not actually concrete alliance that has been evolving between climate change focused individuals and pandemic focused individuals. Before COVID emerged, there was a very nascent, small, movement mostly among physicians called Planetary Health. And it was an effort to understand how the things we were doing to our environment, and in particular climate change, were affecting the risk of disease emergence, both new diseases and increases in old ones, such as heat stroke and traumatic injury from extreme weather events and so on. And, you know, it's a very small movement, not really known outside of medical circles. My dream for the future is that out of this comes some really bold, dramatic thinking that overlaps into the macroeconomic community, such that high-level financing, high-level the kinds of thinking that Larry Summers has been toying with and uh, Thomas Piketty has been toying with, looking at... Uh, large scale macroeconomic crises that cross borders that have nothing to do with specific national policies and seeing how all of this, the climate piece, the human biology piece, the macroeconomic piece have to be addressed through mechanisms that go way beyond specific national policies. And that we have to come up with what I think is going to happen, I hope, is going to happen in the next couple of years is a, uh, a much more uh, concrete building of the bridges between folks who are seeing the world as a biosphere and folks that are seeing the world as a physical planet. We are recognizing increasingly whether we are the CEO of a multinational corporation or uh, Greta Thunberg and mm. her followers, or uh, mm. a, a physician confronting a record level of ICU admissions for a deadly disease, we're all starting mm. to realize that um, our we can't live on the planet the same way any longer. We, we need new rules, new rules right. of I how we coexist, mean. new ways of governance, new ways of being on the planet, or, right. or we're going to leave such a shit pile for the next for for my grandchildren you know that generation such a shit pile that uh it'll be unsolvable
0: yes shit pile that's the that's the technical term for it we're (laughs) that's the in the end epiphany is being driven by necessity um that is a a good place a good thought to be thinking about and uh and a uh, I'm looking I was trying to find some place of hope to land and at least I think maybe that we found a little bit of uh, a little bit of optimism here at the end Lori Garrett thank you for spending this time we went longer than we planned to go but uh, I really appreciate you uh, devoting some of your day to us thank you um, and uh, we'll catch you down the line Hell in High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio thanks again to Lori Garrett for being on the pod if you like this episode please subscribe to Hell in High Water and leave a nice rating for us on the Apple Podcast app it helps people find out what we're doing here i am your host and the executive editor of the recount john heilman grace weinstein is a co-creator of hell Highwater. high water Aaliyah jackson engineer the podcast justin chermel and diana roten handle the research ali rogers is our associate producer sarah soffer is our producer and christian fidel castro Russell is our executive producer